Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Pangen, and with me here in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Savos. How are you? I'm great today, as we have the great pleasure of talking to Matt Joss, the founder and chief investment officer of Maven Funds Management. We got in contact with Matt thanks to our friend and lawyer listener, Alan, which you might know from Twitter as Partnership Investing. For today's episode, our guest has selected the book Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction, written by Phil Tetlock and Dan Gardner. And the book was published in 2015. Here comes our conversation with Matt Joss. Welcome to the podcast, Matt, and thank you for taking the time. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. And where are you today? Uh, so I'm in Brisbane today. So yeah, I've been living in Australia for a few years now and just, just moved up to Brisbane recently. So moved around a little bit, Sydney and Brisbane. Lived over a bit near you guys for a while over in Copenhagen, Denmark. But yeah, in warm, sunny Brisbane at the moment. And how did you get started with investing? I uh, got started with investing. Um, I think I was interested in business from a pretty young age. I'd read um, a book, which I don't recommend, uh, called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which got me interested in that as a a young teen. Um, And that, I think, yeah, so basically as soon as I turned 18, I started investing once I was allowed to like legally open a brokerage account, um, but had no clue what I was doing. And finally later discovered some other books, one about Warren Buffett, which kind of got me onto the the correct road. Um, but yeah, I guess I grew up saving um, and interested in business. But that was yeah, a couple of one book to get me interested and one to, to set me on the right path is, is kind of how I think about it. And which book was that? Um, it was actually a pretty simple one. It's just how Buffett does it. It was like a pretty you know basic one, but it just kind of lit that spark. So I started investing when I was eighteen, but I was a you know like a man without a map, following following the blind, I guess, um, learning from other people on stock forums, which. It, you know, back then, maybe, I don't know if they're any better now, probably not much better. Um, so I had uh, yeah, a lot of interest in energy, but I just kind of thought investing was about trying to, you know, get, get some news or find something hot and didn't really have a kind of uh, philosophy to hang it on. And so, yeah, discovering Buffett kind of, you know, that was when it started taking over my life. Um, just bef- that was around when I moved to Copenhagen and I was here before my partner arrived um, or there before my partner arrived for a while. So I had the, the long Danish winter just to become obsessed with investing and read a whole lot more um, books, Snowball and everything else. Um, yeah, and that was that was kind of when I got the bug of investing. And how come you moved back to Australia? Uh, yeah, so originally from New Zealand, I moved to uh, Denmark for a grad program. I think out of uni, I wanted to see the world, uh, international business. So it was kind of an opportunity to be an expat for a while, which is really cool. But when I was there, as I said, it started taking over my life. I literally nights and weekends, that was all I would do. Um, started an investment partnership with a friend, started a Copenhagen investment club um, on Meetup. And uh, yeah, so I basically realized like this isn't... Um, you know, I was, uh, you know, working in finance for a big shipping company is interesting, but it wasn't like my passion. And I had an opportunity. I started writing for the Molly Fool Australia. I had an opportunity. They were hiring an analyst to move down to Australia, um, kind of take a new adventure. And yeah, that's, that's how I ended up moving back down to kind of pursue the dream, I guess, of investing professionally. And fascinating how, how books can change the course of your life, as you mentioned. Yeah, and today you have chosen the book Super Forecasting. So why have you done this? Super Forecasting is one of my all-time favorite books. I kind of consider it like a foundational book um, for me. 
uh, in my investing, but it's it's how to think about investing. So there's a lot. It's not actually an investing book per se. It's a thinking book, I'd, I'd say. Um, but it it's it's how to think about all the the difficulties of investing, and it's it gives you that framework. So before or there's a lot in the industry that's kind of anti-forecasting and I think they address it quite early we can get into some of that a bit later but it teaches you first and foremost that it is a learnable skill something that you can develop and I think it's really to the core of everything that we do in the profession and frankly a lot of our lives Um, and it really breaks it down it's like the the best book I've come across that's a combination of like deep academic and practical research but then with like handy, useful, practical tips. Like it's it's that combination that I think is really interesting. Um, and yeah, it's just one I'm quite passionate about. I, I get fired up in defense of, uh, in defense of forecasting because I think it has a bad name for some fairly good reasons that we can get into, but it's yeah really foundational to me and how I think about how to invest. And the authors of the book are Phil Tetlock and Dan Gardner. Can you briefly mm-hmm. tell us about them? Yeah, so Phil Tetlock, I think he opens a book, um, it's on about page five or something, and he kind of talks about, you know, it starts with a joke. You might have heard, you know, the joke about the dart-throwing chimp um, being better than the expert. Um, and he kind of goes on to say, you know, a researcher studied all these experts and, you know, found they were no better than chance. And he says, that's not actually what people say, though, because it's not funny. So they say it's no better than a dart-throwing chimp. And then he says, I am that researcher. And this is a book like about forecasting, right? So it's kind of interesting. He's the guy that did that research. So, um, yeah, very accomplished um, academic at the University of Pennsylvania, I believe. Um, And he basically, his kind of first book was Expert Political Judgment, where he'd studied a few hundred experts um, making thousands of predictions for about 20 years. And that was um, kind of where this view came from, that the experts weren't very good. But uh, he opens a book kind of saying that, that that was misinterpreted or basically taken out of context in some ways, like some parts of it are true and some not, we can get into that. Um, so very smart guy. If you yeah, uh, watch any YouTube videos of t- type in super forecast on YouTube, you kind of see him talk. You can see he's very rigorous and um, thoughtful in how he approaches things, which I quite like. Um, and yeah, partnered with uh, Dan Garner in this one, who's um, partner at kind of background as an investigative journalist and had written a book, frankly, which if you read his bio, this earlier book is basically saying the same thing. I think in the description, it talks about how experts aren't very good and are like dart throwing chimps. So I'm not sure how the collaboration happened, to be honest. That might be an interesting thing in its own. But um, yeah, that it's maybe maybe to make a more accessible book because expert political judgment is kind of a hard read, but super forecasting, I think, is a very easy read to understand it. Um, yeah, that's, I think, how they came together. And why are people in general bad uh, forecasters? Yeah, I mean, I I guess I'd push back. So first, we have this idea that people are bad forecasters. I think we're the best, we we have to say compared to what and in what context, because humans are the best forecasters in the known universe, like in terms of general purpose forecasting, that's the base of what we do. Um, There's some, you know, the leading kind of science of theories in neuroscience point to the neocortex basically being a prediction machine. Um, it builds a model of the world or thousands of different models and then can, you know, forecast what's going to happen. And then if something different happens, then it, you know, gets a jolt and it hopefully learns um, or, or chooses another model. It's really the core of what we do. And I think what the idea that people are bad forecasters is um, when we start getting into domains that are difficult to forecast. So, you know, we're excellent forecasters in science, right? Like science is basically just forecasting. We make a prediction, we test it. But if we're thinking about 
complex adaptive systems, so kind of human systems, and we're thinking many years out, these are extremely complex domains. Um, and, and so there's kind of a limit to how far you can see in the future. Super forecasting talks about maybe 18 months is kind of the upper limit. And some of his prior research was more on that three to five year mark. And that's where some of the problems were. But I think there's a lot of other things laying on. A, we just haven't really tried before. Like we have the idea that we're bad at it. And so no, it's not a science. It's like, it's like, and they talk about this in the book, the medical profession a couple hundred years ago, it'd be like, why are humans bad doctors? And you'd see a lot of evidence if you looked around when there was bloodletting that people were bad doctors. But it turns out we just didn't have the right approach. We hadn't tried yet, basically. And once you got the scientific method into medicine, you had the you know medical revolution of um, healthcare. So, uh, yeah, I guess I push back on the idea we're bad. But I think that the the reason that um, there's a lot of bad forecasts because there are bad or bad predictions out there is we're not incentivized to do it. We haven't tried. And the people that are typically pundits um, invited on television, I've been on television a few times. It's definitely an incentive to say something really emphatic, um, to say it with 100% certainty, to not be anything wishy-washy. This is the opposite of good forecasting. Good forecasting is very thoughtful. Um, it gives a balance of probabilities. It's not deterministic. And it's kind of the opposite of what makes good TV. So we're not, we're not, we haven't tried we're selecting actively for bad forecasting and the types of what we want for punditry and entertainment. Um, and we haven't measured it. So we haven't, we don't, we don't hold anyone to account. So I think those three things kind of explain what is bad about a lot of macro predictions. I agree with the general, you know, a lot of macro predictions are terrible, but it's more the state of where we currently are than where we could be. I think if we applied some of the lessons in this book. And I mean, considering forecasting as is, is at the heart of what, what we do as investors, I'm I'm curious to know what you've learned from the book in terms of becoming a good forecaster and how it has helped you to improve your investing process. Yeah, I think it's 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 a it's a constant process. So it kind of permeates everything that I do and what we try to do. So they give a lot of descriptions in the book about the attributes of a good, um, I was going to say good investor, a good forecaster. I think they're the same thing, basically. If you if you read through it, it's it's all the stuff that, you know, Charlie um, figured out, Charlie Munger figured out, and Warren Buffett figured out. They've just, it's with rigorous science. Um, so we, the way that I try and apply it is thinking through everything probabilistically, thinking through what they call the outside view. So thinking about base rates before you get into the specifics. Um it's actually really relevant to to the style of investing I like. So I'm kind of biased towards fast growing businesses. It's just what interests me. You know, personally, I like technology and, and change. I'm still a value investor. So I think there's that, that classic false dichotomy between value and growth. But I think there is a bit of a spectrum there. You have one end of value investing, which is uh, mature businesses that are very predictable. And you have the other end, which um, is, you know, early stage businesses. And so the more you move towards early stage, the more your terminal value, more, the more the future matters if you're going to value that business. And so that's how I try and bring it in, basically, is, is breaking down our you know, thesis of what we own into forecasts and just thinking through the probability, you know, weighted outcomes of, of what we're trying to do. Um, it's, it, yeah, I guess overall it's, it's how to think at like a high level. And then there's some kind of practical tools that follow from it. But um, so that's the first. And then when we you know, bring other people into the firm, it's looking for those traits that they talk about. So open-mindedness, um, the kind of catchphrase of the book, I think, is that, um, uh, what was it? Beliefs are um, hypotheses to be tested, not treasures to be guarded. So 
trying to just find people who are already like that because it's really hard to change someone's kind of DNA if they're not like that and then just trying to build a culture that enforces that. So yeah, that's that's the the high level. It's like an entire lifetime to master that process, but it's just like, kind of beautifully laid out um, in, in my view. And about the 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 thing you laid out about that you can actually improve as a as a forecaster. Uh, not all are as positive as you are uh, about this. And uh, I mean, two examples of that is uh, Daniel Kahneman and uh, Nassim Taleb. What is their critique about? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. Um, I wonder if Tetlock has them in mind. There's a great quote that he has in the book about how his work got skewed. Um, and I think he talks about, I think he, what was it he said, my research has become um, a reference for nihilists who see the future as inherently unpredictable and no nothing populist who insists on um, preceding expert with so-called. So I think he's like a bit um, affronted by it, but the, the, there's kind of a couple of um, things to pick apart. The first is our language, right? So we talk about forecasting and a lot of what people mean by that, I would say is more like pr- spot prediction. So prediction is um, particularly spot prediction is you're predicting a thing that's going to happen. Like I say, Russia will invade Ukraine or Russia will not invade Ukraine or this thing will happen. And that's just not possible to do unless it's 100% probability. We should be forecasting that range of probability. So I think a lot of what people see as bad, like we shouldn't forecast, is actually saying we shouldn't predict a specific outcome in an uncertain future, which I completely agree with. That's like the whole the whole basis of super forecasting. Um, so that's one. I think there's just this inherent sense um, from those two critics that it's something that is not, doable or if it is doable it's not useful like Taleb talks about black swans or all that matter um, but they kind of address that in the book again that you know you can make a black swan more of a gray scrawn if you understand at least the probability estimate so you're not trying to predict that you know there will be a global pandemic but you can say this is a one in a hundred year probability so that is a base rate we should at least expect a one percent chance each year and you know people were saying this as people talk about it's unpredictable Kind of fear. Bill Gates a couple of years ago had a major keynote where he's like, "We should be preparing for a global pandemic." It's been about hundred, you know, like we. Um, so I think that there's there's some. It's mixing things up basically. It's mixing up the bad pundits on TV. It's mixing up spot predictions with a range of outcomes. Because I've never heard someone say you shouldn't think about the probabilistic future and like probability weight your estimates of events. Like, and and then you know act accordingly that's a hard thing to argue against because it's so rational and reasonable but there's a there's a lot to if you create the straw man and i don't even know if they they realize they're doing i read howard mark's recent memo um and i was kind of taking notes as i read through it um in part preparing because i knew we'd be chatting about some critics of forecasting and everything he's he's talking about i was noting is deterministic um, thinking of the world. So deterministic world means you think like a clock, right? It's completely predictable. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. The world that we forecast isn't like that. And so all of his criticism was about how the world isn't deterministic, but that's very addressed in super forecasting. There's, there's, we need to understand it's not a deterministic world. That's why we have a probabilistic world. And I think that that, um, that kind of sums it up, I guess, is the, the main thing. You know, Kahneman's fairly pessimistic in general on human abilities and foibles and i think so i think that's why maybe one last comment on it is this is super forecasting like it's not easy casting right like it's what he found was um 
although the forecasters were kind of better than chance, like the people who volunteered and were already kind of smart and interested, there was only 2% two, two that were super forecasters able to really outperform about 60 to 80% better than the control. So that's, you know, that's still, if you're going to take the average, if you're a person used to taking the average, maybe the average is still not that interesting if they're only 20% better. But the point is that you can become better and we haven't really tried yet. And yeah, there's these super forecasters, the top 2% that are meaningfully, usefully better. Probably similar to the distribution of good uh, fund managers or, or investors, right? Yeah, well, exactly right. And I think, um, yeah, it's that kind of power law distribution. I think that, yeah, I think that there'll be a very small kind of chunk that add enough value. And yeah, I, I'd agree. I think that's a, that's a way to think about it. Um, or the you know, startup of a new company, right? If you're starting a company, if you just looked at the, the averages, you'd never start a, a new startup because everyone, almost everyone fails, but the few that make it, it, it's so valuable. So yeah, I think that's a good framing. And when it comes to improving as forecasters, the authors really help us by ending the book with this practical summary, uh, what they call the 10 commandments. So can you tell us a bit about these ones? Yeah, so um, I, I, yeah, we can chat, chat through them. So um, it's super helpful. You're kind of like, I take a lot of notes through a book as I'm reading it. And this one you get to the end, it's like, oh, they've already summarized it all perfectly. Um, but yeah, so they, the 10 commandments, and I think they have actually 11, which is, is great um, because the 11th one is basically don't, don't over rely on commandments. Um, so the first one is triage. So that's basically deciding which problems are uh, forecastable. So don't spend, don't waste time on super easy forecasts that are just what they call clock-like. Like if it's deterministic and easy to predict, um, don't waste time on it. But likewise, if it's incredibly complex, cloud-like, you know, if you're trying to predict the GDP in 100 years time, don't waste time on that either. So focus where you, it pays off, um, you know, break the problems down into sub-problems. So you might not be able to forecast when the Ukraine war will end, but you might be able to forecast more specific things like how much more funding will Ukraine get, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, was it striking? Yeah, striking a balance between inside and outside. I think starting with the outside um, view is really important. Something that as investors, we're always drawn to the inside view. So thinking about specifics of the company. Um, a lot of that they talk about is balance. So they use the analogy of riding a bike, like don't lean too far left, don't lean too far to the right. Like, Sorry, so, Matt, can you can you just speak a bit more about the inside outside view? So, so our listeners really yeah. grasp that. Yeah. So um, when we're looking at a company, especially if you you have to choose your path to understanding the company, I think. So if you're coming at it from the company's presentation and a charismatic CEO, um, then you're getting the inside view, which is the company specific view or the, you know, the event specific view. So it's kind of why this company is so special and so great and everything they'll do is amazing. The outside view is looking at all similar examples of that instance that have gone before. So if this is a, you know, cash burning early stage tech startup, you should look at what's the base rate, you know, the, the average rate, what's the typical performance from that group and start there. And that kind of, if you have to choose an anchor, that's kind of the argument you make. You you will you will anchor anyway, because anchoring is a bias. So it's better to anchor at a level that is at least informed by base rates and then moderate that up or down. So if you know that only, you know, 5% of early stage money burning startups go on to become successful businesses, that should be where you kind of start if you're thinking about probabilities. And then maybe this one's really great and they've got all this other stuff and maybe you get up to 10 or 15 and that kind of puts it in perspective. Then you're saying, I'm, I think it's three times better than normal, but it's still only, you know, a 15% probability or whatever. Um, so that's the, that's the outside and inside view. And it's really, 
easy to jump to the inside view. It's the, all these things, and I don't claim to be perfect at any of this. This is a constant process, but um, yeah, that's that's how I see the outside and inside, and starting outside and working your way in. Yeah, maybe. We, and so the the next one was the balance of underreacting and overreacting to evidence. So um, I think you had a good line. Belief updating is to good forecasting. Um, as brushing and flossing out of dental hygiene, um, boring, uncomfortable, but pays off in the long term. So it's tough to reconsider your beliefs, and I think that you need to constantly want to do that. It's very easy. Your brain spends a lot of time training a model. And once it's trained a model, it really doesn't want to shift off to a different model. That's one evolutionary kind of driver for it. And so when you find some disconfirming evidence, it's very easy just to stick in what you're already doing. Um, so if you can find a way to uh, get, you know, adjust to that, counteract yourself, but not too much, um, then that can be really powerful. Um, the fifth one I really liked was looking for the clashing causal for forces that are at work in each problem. And this is really important because like if you turn on, if you tune into Twitter and some of the YouTube um, interviews of doom and macro stuff at the moment, we've all got the, like the bad causal forces that can happen. Right. But there's, it's very hard to talk about all the good causal forces, which is basically like 7 billion people are currently working to better their lives. And you know, what flow through does that have? So I think that that's, that's one for me. It's very easy to be salient of all the causal forces going in one direction um, you know, the Chinese economy is one. It's easy to think about all the debt and not, you know, the, everything else that's pushing the other way. So I think that's that's quite an important one. Um, strive to distinguish. This is kind of a controversial one, I think. Strive to distinguish as many degrees of doubt as a problem has, but no more. So it's basically saying nuance matters. So it's better to forecast a 55 versus 45 probability than 60-40. It's better to go more granular. Um, and that kind of flies in the face, I think, to a degree with some wisdom where, there's a lot of view that investors have that it's better to be, you know, roughly right than precisely wrong. And I think that that's true because there's so much bad modeling to like hide, um, you know, a lack of knowledge basically in investing and relying on a model too much. But it does show like the best forecasters do have granular views of the world. So I think it's something to be cautious of basically not trying to dumb, dumb down your thinking too much. Try and keep, try and be as specific as it needs to be, but no more specific um, yeah, kind of stuck out to me as, again, one that kind of goes against the, the grain of what we're conventional wisdom is for investing. Um, again, striking the right balance between underconfidence and overconfidence, confidence, um, looking for the errors in behind your mistakes. Um, but again, beware of rear view mirror hindsight. Um, look at do postmortems. Uh, another one that I really like is to uh, look at your successes. So not just postmortems on failures, but postmortems on successes. Um, that's actually one that da David Gardner, so the other, after I discovered Warren Buffett, I was influenced a lot by David Gardner at The Motley Fool, who's the complete opposite in a lot of ways, hyper growth, multi-baggers. But that's something that he had always said is, I focus on my successes because that's where I make the money, <laughs> um, which I think is really interesting. Um, yeah, bring out the best in others and let them bring out the best in you. So it's perspective, basically trying to build a like high-performing team, um, try and you know, authentically reproduce the arguments of the other person to their liking. I think that's a great way to start framing a debate to stop. It, it pulls you out of it being an ad hominem attack and one-on-one -on -one kind of our lower brain ego fight into a more thoughtful discussion. Um, yeah, being really precise with your questions, constructive confrontation, that kind of thing. Uh, the 10th one was mastering the error, error balancing bicycles. So basically each of these he's talked about is like riding a bicycle. Um, try and you know 
think think through how to balance out these opposing errors. And that's a big one because it's like it's not a book where you can just read 10 points and just go easily implement them. You have to constantly balance all of this through your life. Um, and I think of the, the best investors, when you talk about like Stanley Druckenmiller, he talks about a lot about like when you're hot as investing, he likes to put on more risk. Um, again, he's more of a trader than a lot of at least me as an investor, but I think that's probably what is happening. I think he's probably finding he's really in balance on the bicycle and that's the time that he pedals hard um, if I was going to you know, apply that thinking here. Um, and the last one, which I love, 10 commandments, the 11th is don't treat commandments as commandments, um, kind of constantly be updating your thinking. And I, I kind of like that's a good way to end the super forecasting book is like, it's not a Bible, guys. Like you have to constantly update. We are, we're scientists. We're trying to like improve the field of, of human knowledge of what we're doing. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a, a great way to summarize at the end of the book. And we're curious to hear how you use all of this in your work as a money manager. Uh, but first, we can talk a little bit about your firm, maybe Maven Funds Management, uh, where you are the founder and CIO of. And some of our listeners might come to think of Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, when they hear uh, Maven and Mavens. Can you tell us a bit yeah. about this? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That was the inspiration for the um, the name. Um, so, you know, in, in The Tipping Point, um, Gladwell identifies this group of Mavens that are kind of critical to the idea of uh, the spread of a new idea um, trusted expert kind of seeks out knowledge and then shares that with others. Um, and that's kind of, that's the big driving force for what motivates me as an investor. Um, before starting Maven, I worked for Motley Fool, as I mentioned, joined as research analyst and then portfolio manager for a service that they had there called Motley Fool Pro um, and kind of let, ran that in that, well, was four and a half years there, partly as research analyst and then as portfolio manager um, and kind of thought I'd leave there and just manage my own money to a degree and maybe some friends and family um, and had a lot of the former clients reach out. Um, you know, they'd had a lot of success. People were giving um, money back to charity and we had one gentleman who, you know, built some houses for people in Mexico and it was uh, kind of a uh, tipping point for myself, I guess, is thinking, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Um, I had some friends who had made enough money to invest independently. And a lot of people, <laughs> I shouldn't say it's too much, my friends who's listening, but you, a lot of people end up in their sweatpants in the lounge and not really, they find like the, the meaning kind of vanishes pretty quickly, I think, after you get out of um, working with other people. And that's what interests me the most is um, working with other people directly and also with our investors, our, our co-investors and kind of sharing knowledge with them and getting their thoughts on things um, back in return. So, you know, I had an investor email me just the other day talking about what, you know, some Chinese factories that he's um, aware of are doing. And it's just, yeah, that's, that's what interests me. So that's the idea of, uh, of Maven, I guess we're trying to, trying to master the craft of investing. Um, and I guess if anyone's listening to this and they're interested in the idea of super forecasting and how it can be applied, I'd, I'd love to chat and swap notes. We're very open to that. Um, yeah, so th that's the that's the idea behind Maven. In terms of how we apply it, um, I think it's, yeah, breaking down all those components and get into some specifics if you like, but thinking about how we can break down everything that we do into a forecast as much as possible and just the kind of philosophy of how we think about um, investing and yeah, decision-making. And firstly, how many are you at Maven and, and what is your strategy when it comes to investing? Yeah, so our focus is Australian and New Zealand. We're basically trying to master that market. Um, we tend to invest in global companies that are based here. Um, and the reason, you know, putting this together was pre-COVID when it's hard to uh, travel 
or before everyone had Zoom, basically, where I was thinking, okay, we're starting off. We probably want to do something where we can meet with CEOs because we like to meet with CEOs directly. Um, but yeah, the strategy is basically trying to find these, what you might call like a right tail winner. We'd, we'd call them monsters, but these small companies, they have the ability to grow to be very large. Finding them when they're early enough that we think we can value and forecast them, but um yeah, not so not so big that you know most of the gains have already been had. I guess that's that's the sweet spot of what we're trying to aim for. Is trying to catch those right tail events as as early as we can, as, as many of those as we can find. But yeah, the, the the positioning kind of is between Warren Buffett and David Gardner. So everything's always driven by valuation, but it's a range of opportunities that we can see in there. We're we're very happy to own something that's deeply undervalued and spewing cash. Um, and maybe growing modestly, that, that's possible if it's undervalued enough for sure. Um, but the, I think a lot of investing is not, it's not like a independent thing of what the best approach is. It's what's the best approach for you. It's trying on like a lot of different styles to find what suits your temperament and interest. Um, and I guess our interest is focusing on technology and change and those moments where things are very different from the recent past, what we'd call like a fundamental inflection point. So the, the future is very different. Um, and there's yeah three of us at the moment and um, yeah, potentially, potentially expanding the team, but pretty small team. We won't, we won't be growing to be a massive team. I think one of the advantages and something they talk about in the super forecasting is the importance of a cohesive small kind of team and, and making sure you don't get group thinking all those other things going. Um, yeah. So now I'm really curious to know a bit more about your your investing process and and how the framework of uh, super far- forecasting ha- have shaped uh, how you work and it would be really interesting to to hear if you could talk us through maybe a stock that you own and and how you've used the the framework when first buying the stock and and then updating your views uh, over time. Yeah, we try and incorporate it into the whole process. Um, so when we when we it's not just for the ones that we own either. It's ones we don't often for the ones we say no to, we try and put a forecast in there and then track that forecast. Um, so we have a little system set up so we can forecast the reason typically tied to the reason that we're saying no, for instance, um, you know, we think this company's only going to grow active users by, you know, 10% or whatever it is. And then we can track that in a year's time when we'll have those figures. Um, so it kind of, tr- we try to have it permeate as much as possible. The process is really deep into what we do in terms of specific, um, probably one of the best examples uh, is Cogstate, um, which is a neuroscience or cognitive testing company. Um, and that's one that we've, um, Held for quite a while. It has performed very well from our first position. We started with a very small position because we didn't, you know, didn't have enough or didn't have enough. We didn't see a high enough probability, basically, of success at that stage. Um, but it's an interesting one from this perspective of forecasting because it's uh, got a kind of solid core business, but it's also very tied to the outcome of things beyond its control, which is um, basically having the first Alzheimer's drug on market, which means there's a lot more demand for further Alzheimer's research there, kind of like a picks and shovels play on Alzheimer's drug research. They provide the clinical trial software and smart PhD people to help run the clinical trials to test people's cognition, see if it's improved over time. Um, And they have kind of two opportunities to benefit from a big boom in Alzheimer's research if and when it comes. One, that they do those trials and and two, they've they've licensed out their software for ASI, one of the big pharma giants, to use as a screening test, which if successful, again, thinking about probabilities, but if successful could be 
a game changer kind of tens of millions of market of um, very high margin revenue in a company that you know would dwarf the current business basically if that happened and so the usefulness of um, something like super forecasting is you know investors tend to think of that as a coin flip or they won't own until it's sure that it's going to happen or sometimes if we're in a speculative mania they'll just own it because there's a potential for it to happen right like if we're thinking about some of the electric vehicle stocks a little while ago so it's kind of trying to step between those two and actually put some numbers around it so um yeah so we i, I try to break down um, different parts of it. Like, will this drug have a successful outcome at this tri- at the stage three trial, for instance? Will it um, be funded by the CMS? Um, you know, will, it have, will it be approved by the FDA? And then think through the base rate. So looking at you know, what percentage of drugs are. Is this a good base rate? Because um, the other interesting thing about what we do at an inflection point, and this is what Howard Marks talked about as well, at an inflection point, the past kind of becomes irrelevant. To a degree, and that's the um, because there's a as a change, right? So the first Alzheimer's drug that's ever approved um, is the first. There's no like basis for that in the past, and that's where you can have these massive uh, kind of re-rates in the market's perception of things. And so we're kind of on the cusp of that now, potentially. So lecanemab is just had um, very positive phase three trial results. We'll find out in the next six to nine months if it's going to be the first major new drug that's approved. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's kind of how we think about. It. Start from that base rate of no drugs have no Alzheimer's drugs have been approved before, no disease modifying Alzheimer's drugs, and then kind of work up from there. And now we're starting to get more and more evidence. Actually, this one is likely to be approved. And as we started incorporating that into our valuation, I don't think the upside's in there. And that's that's kind of how we can have a margin of safety. Sometimes, is you know, the existing business as it ticks along is you know probably slightly undervalued, probably around there. But there's this huge upside potential. That's kind of the the margin of margin of safety or the upside to that investment case, and coming coming at this from an uh, from a sell side point of view uh, that we have as uh, analysts, we are also covering a lot of life science companies and dealing with these kind of base rates and probabilities. But like many investors, our opinion at least uh, is that they don't really grasp that it's a probability game and it's a lot about understanding the assumptions and have this scenario analysis that we have base case which is like the most likely scenario, but there's also a bull case and a, and a bear case. But many people are, when they are looking at analysis, they, they are often like focusing on, on one number and one valuation. And the very, uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that's the human condition, right? It's like, don't don't give me these probabilities. Tell me what it's going to be. What are we paying you for? <laughs> that's the whole thing. Um, yeah, in Super Forecast, in, the, in a recent, in a, well, not a recent speech, a speech that you can find on YouTube if you're looking up, Phil Tetlock um, talked to, he, a quote from the, the movie, I'm forgetting the name of it, whether it's SEAL Team 6, but about the hunt for Osama bin Laden. And this is kind of scene where they're in the room with the CIA and the notion of CIA chief. You know, they're saying, I think it's a 60% probability that Osama's there. And everyone says a 60 and he's like, oh, what is this? You know, this cluster, I won't swear on your podcast. Um, and, you know, what are you people saying? And then this analyst comes in and she says, 100% probability, 100% he's there. He's like, brilliant. You're the, you know, you're the one. And she's the hero of the movie, right? That's terrible forecasting. It's not 100%. There's no way it was 100% before going in. Um, and I think we're just drawn to, we're drawn to that as, as humans. It's, it's um, I mean, it's political leaders as well. Leaders, we're drawn to people that are incredibly high conviction. The, the reason that like we're crazy people often are in very influential positions um, are because they have a complete conviction in what they're saying. 
um yeah i won't won't name any celebrities i'm not sure if i'm going to annoy kanye or something like that but um that we're drawn to that high conviction there's something about us that we find it fascinating and it maybe soothes our uncertain world to see someone like that but it's just not how the world works yeah the authors are really hoping for an evidence-based forecasting movement as, as they put it what do you think about that is there any any hope for that um i definitely think there's hope like i think we're you see it even in some sales side, you know, there's some younger, smart sales side guys, perhaps like yourselves who are starting to incorporate this and you see more talk about probability ranges, right? When they're doing estimates. Um, I think it's starting. I think maybe prediction markets and maybe some more smart stuff around that will probably be what drives it a bit more. But yeah, just unfortunately, these things take a bit of time. Hopefully, you know, podcasts like this get the, the word out on it. Um it can really improve a, improve society, I think, if it gets adopted. So the challenge is at the moment, like the entertainment style doesn't, it doesn't suit it. Like it doesn't speak to our, you know, our id, our deep um, animal side of our brain. So we need to find a way to, to get both across, I think, create a tournament that people are also very interested in, the, like nuanced views. Well, for us as investors, it's quite good, actually. <laughs> for now, I mean, we still have an edge, I guess. I've thought about that, to be honest, like, should we really try and correct people <laughs> about this? It's kind of a pretty big deal um, that even, you know, even very big successful investors, as I said, Howard Marks was, I think um, he's kind of not, not, not thinking the same way about this. Obviously, he's an incredibly successful investor I learned a lot from. So I think there's something to that. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's not, um, it's not an easy thing to do anyway. So, yeah. And uh, I mean, one of the commandments you you mentioned was to to break down an original question into smaller parts. And I mean, considering that uh, as an investor, I mean, we talk about should we buy, should we sell, uh, but there there are really tons of questions into that. It's not it's not just a buy or sell. Can you can you maybe describe that a bit? How do you incorporate this, and and how do you come up with good sub questions to to the main question, so to speak? Yeah, this is something just coincidentally, I took a course at university on um, the philosophy of logic, I think it was, um, the kind of a formal logic class, um, just out of interest, basically. And it kind of kind of taught that basic framing of how to break down an argument into its premises. And, you know, you can have two types of arguments, deductive, where if the premises are all true, then the argument is definitely true, like A equals B, B equals C, um, therefore A equals C, or inductive, which is kind of the world that we're in, where we're thinking about the probability of the premises. And so I kind of had this idea before super forecasting to, and when you're thinking about it in a stock thesis, break it down into premises and sub-conclusions, and then those sub-conclusions themselves are premises for the total conclusion, the final conclusion. Um, and so that's kind of a, a view of how I try and break it down um, which seems to be a, a good approach in super forecasting view. So that's basically what we try and do. We try and break down into a series of premises, P1, P2, P3, then the notation for it, which would lead to a conclusion. And that gives you something that you can track and something that you can forecast and measure yourself on. Um, so, you know, it depends on, depends on how you go about that, depends on the business, but you want it to be something measurable. Um, you want to be as specific as possible, not like, will this company have good morale? Do you want to have a way to measure it? However you do it. Um, and yeah, try and combine those back up. And I think that that, it makes it a lot easier. It's hard to do to start off with. Like it's not actually, cause you're not used to thinking that way. Um, but yeah, I think that along with like writing out your investment thesis, write out your investment thesis and then go back through it and kind of break out what are the few premises of this argument 
and what are the sub conclusions and what are the conclusions and you can often strip out just parts where that doesn't make sense like that doesn't imply that just because you know it's growing revenue it doesn't imply that it's i don't know whatever high return on invested capital um so yeah that's kind of how i try and break it out is how specific can we get the premises can we test them and then the testing part's quite fun it's talking to other um, people who used to work in the company experts and stuff and you, you have a more targeted game of what you're going after when you review the position um yeah and i think the other thing with investing is you know you're you're completely unbiased and rational up until the point that you buy. And from then on, you have the endowment effect to contend with. So I think it's a good um, a good way to go back, you know, when you get some news on the company, whether good or bad, and kind of evaluate your premises and conclusions. And if, if when you go about updating your original view, uh, as you said, I mean, for example, have you seen a pattern where you have incorporated a, some, some kind of catalyst that will really that will really change uh, the thesis from, I mean, either the positive or the negative? And how do the market typically react if if that happens? Is it underreaction or overreaction? And yeah, maybe you can speak about that. I mean, it's a great question. I think you kind of want the market to not react often, right? Because then the beautiful thing is you're watching this catalyst, you get to buy on the reaction. And that, that I think is where you can have the most alpha. Um, there's definitely been some where I've been waiting and thinking this catalyst, and it turns out there's so many other people looking at it that it just shoots up. Um, Cogstate actually recently just shot up significantly on these results, but now it's coming back down and maybe people will get a bit bored of it. Markets aren't, you know, not, not much is happening. Um, and so, you know, that can be another opportunity. So yeah, I think it just comes back to the, the valuation test basically right like that's where that's always my foundation it's kind of the north star um to stop me getting lost is how much does this actually change the valuation like we're we're not just doing a it's not just a prediction tournament we then tie it back to the valuation how much does this change the you know discounted cash flows we expect to get um but yeah this is this is the craziest time in the history of investing i feel like like Stanley Druckenmiller has said, I've studied hundreds of years. He's like the greatest investor of all time, particularly in macro and trading. And he's, this is the most uncertain time ever. So I think there's, you have to be aware of um, kind of fake outs. And at least for me, not having too firm of a view, like whether it's inflation or whatever, I'm, I'm very, I, c- I could imagine inflation falling off for a couple months and everyone getting massively faked out that way. And then it coming back as we have an energy driven inflation again. So I think it's just for me being yeah open to, the vast array of possibilities and trying to adapt at each time and yeah again try and step back and make a good forecast at the moment being pragmatic i think uh, we talked about that with uh, robert hagstrom yes yeah yeah that's um that's the approach um i don't know how do you guys think about it in this in this age it's a pretty it's a pretty weird time at the moment right but it feels like we always say that this is such a strange time we cannot predict anything <laughs> i mean it's so uncertain everything and then with hindsight it's like yeah, it turned out in in a specific way, and then it's there are always reasons for it. So, yeah, it's it's tough. I think um, I mean I agree to a lot, but you what you said, uh, and I think uh, just try to um, keep track on on things that that's happening. And and I mean just because it everything is seems to change all the time, it doesn't mean that you should stop. You should still try to make your best forecast of, of what's happening and and, and so on and. and uh, I think that's the way to go. Yeah, I think it comes back to the, one of the concepts in this book about growth mindset versus fixed mindset. Uh, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about that? Maybe you can explain the concept for, for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge one. Um, I had on 
for a while on my on my wall win or learn um which uh, yeah basically that concept so a fixed mindset you believe your abilities are fixed and you know the outcomes that you have in life are kind of predetermined growth mindset believes that you can change that um and i think the more that you can have a growth mindset about any endeavor the more successful you'll be like there's a lot of research on that you'll be more resilient um, but it's also interesting that we're not like one thing and we're, we're on a spectrum and we're on a spectrum with regard to different activities like i was thinking it through i probably have a pretty fixed mindset or i had and like on my ability to draw <laughs> and so i'm just like testing that with some um, book drawing on the right side of the brain but when it comes to investing the growth mindset um, means that you think that you have the ability to become better when it comes to forecasting. I think that's again, why this book is so powerful because it instills a growth mindset. It says, you know, that a mistake is an opportunity to learn and get better. It doesn't mean you're, you know, doomed to be like this forever. Um, and yeah, you, you just reminded me as well of the difference between foxes and hedgehogs. That was some of the research that you found, you know, that's something that we see a lot of at the moment is this say like, people who have one, one mental model or a couple and they use that to examine the whole world and those again that gives you a lot of conviction when you have that um and but in these and so in these uncertain times it's very easy to find someone who's like predicted the ukraine war or inflation and they have one model one lens to see the whole world but it's a really bad way to go through life because there's sometimes that lens applies and you should use it and there's a lot of times where it doesn't and those are the hedgehogs Those are the hedgehogs, exactly. Yeah. So um, where you want to be, I think, is a fox, which I think a lot of generalist investors will probably like hearing, but a confirmation bias for us. But you want to be across a lot of different domains of Charlie Munger's mental models. Um, you want to find the mental model that best fits the domain. I used to think of mental models as like this abstract concept, but again, the latest neuroscience research, um, which is in a book called A Thousand Brains that I really liked, um, indicates that our brain is literally just a the neocortex at least is a competition between thousands of models like it's literally mental models like all the way down our vision is mental models etc and so i think that that's it you just want to find you want to find ones that fit and the fit the scenarios best or you know um, all models are wrong some models are useful um, and that's the way to frame it um yeah there's Plenty of authors at the moment who have one lens, and I think it's good to learn from them. There's and and um, Peter Zihan who just uses geography and demographics. That's not a lens I've ever used. Like I never think about, or I never normally thought about geography influencing the world. Really, like we the world is flat, etc. But that's actually an interesting lens to put on, and then think about how it affects businesses and countries and everything else. And what are your most common cognitive biases? Would you say? My most common, um, I think I have I have like an extremism bias probably. So I like can see very pessimistic scenarios and very optimistic ones. So um, yeah, my, I loved history as a as a kid partly because of how different the world is. So I'm probably a bit prone to that. I think if I think back over the last couple of years, I kind of thought COVID would change more things than it did, for instance, um, and kind of ignored the inertia that we all have <laughs> to anything new. Um, and so, that, yeah, those are those are some things. But I, yeah, a whole litany of, of plenty of other cognitive biases that I'm constantly <laughs> trying to manage. <laughs> and is there any investing example where you have tried to use like the super forecasting framework, but you didn't succeed? I think there's lots of examples where I don't succeed um, in investing, but it, it's not really coming down to the framework being wrong. I guess it's again just the it's it's kind of like saying where you tried to you know use value investing and it didn't work. It's kind of like it always works if you can do it right, if you can value the business properly. Um, I think the most recent though, as I, as I mentioned, was you know during COVID, I was my 
my probability estimates were just off for how much that some things were going to change. I kind of saw this as a crossing the chasm moment for a lot of technologies where they were finally going to get from, you know, not really mainstream adoption into mainstream. That kind of happened for a couple of things like Zoom, frankly, like that jump across the chasm, but a lot of other stuff we've, we've kind of snapped back to. Um, maybe remote working is another one. And so that, yeah, that's, that's, probably one recent one where I'd, I had a you know view of the world of still thinking probabilistically but my my weightings were off um, essentially so that's probably the, the main one that I can think of um, the other just constant thing is making sure you don't have thesis creep so just holding yourself to those premises and not not tweaking anything but again that's where I think it can be useful to to do it and how do you avoid thesis creep I think just being really specific on what your thesis is um, when you get new information, the most, like a lot of people talk about uh, in a process for investing and if they were writing it out, they'd have a really great process. Like if you actually, if you talk to a lot of investors today, like we're all kind of pretty well networked on FinTwin or whatever, there's a lot of people you talk to would have a very similar idea of what they're looking for in a good company. And I think a lot of the difference comes down to execution. So it's, it's not, it's, making sure you don't just keep the idea up in your head like, and that you keep doing it. I think a lot of people are good at the start of a new position, for instance, where you have an idea of why you own it, but you need to keep updating the, the premises of that model and the conclusions. So that's the way to combat it, I think, is to just constantly going back to that when there's some new news out, look at those premises and yeah, all the other good stuff, go for a walk. Don't do it when you're emotional because if you're emotional, you're going to catastrophize and your probabilities will be, you know, 95%. We have a great depression or something. Um, so yeah, all those, all that good stuff. I mean, to be a bit more specific. So, so because I, I've thought about this a lot where it's hard sometimes to know if you have made a mistake or if it's, I mean, due to bad luck or, or some other circumstance. Uh, but in in the book it's quite easy to see where the super forecaster have they put like a, a, a probability of of a forecast and then they update that uh, as new data points come in so i mean practically do you do that that as well do you have like a, an investment thesis and you put like okay i think this will happen with a 60% probability and then new data points come in and you update that as you go or how do you how do you make that practically and, and how do you know for for sure that you've done a mistake or not yeah that's that's correct so that's basically what we're what we're doing so we um have it um build a little system so you basically put a probability weighting um out of 100 on whatever the forecast is and then that um calculates a, a briar score for you over a period um i think that the balance with all this is you want to have it light enough that you actually want to use it all the time um, with like robust enough that it's it's good and useful, um, but yeah, that's that's I think the the simple way to do it. It's it's just breaking down the taking those premises and putting them in, and um, yeah, with with some software like we, we use Notion a lot, but there's a lot of other stuff that you can use where you know you can set a reminder for a date to review that and then and you know value that whether you got that correct or not, and that feeds into a, a Briar score. Um, so yeah. Um, that's that's basically it. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do. But it's it's again, if anyone's listening to this and interested in how they approach it, that I think is the um, the interesting challenge because the pro, the so the, a few of the challenges with investing that make it so hard as like a as a deep practice thing is the the delay and feedback loops. So we might be able to forecast some of these short things, but a lot of the other ones are many years. So 
I guess we'll see. We'll, we'll see whether we, you know, we've been doing this for a couple of years now since Maven launched, um, how much our Briar scores improve over time and where the gaps are. But um, it's it's a different endeavor. You, you, you get much longer feedback loops and there's much more randomness in there. But again, that's, that's similar to super forecasting. So um, that's, that's part of the challenge these guys had as well when they're trying to predict political events. Um, they f- found that they could go out to about 18 months. So I think it's just around finding probabil- um, things you can forecast in that kind of range and you know, making that each year. You, know, you make, might make another forecast of even if it's cash flow or revenue or, or something like that or users and then, and then waiting that. Um, I've particularly found it good for the no's. Like that's because you, you say no to a, a vast amount more businesses than you say yes to. So that is always a good reminder. Get a little notification to check what you thought a year ago and were you right or wrong? Um, and you can't do it based on the share price. We try to do stuff based on the share price because there's a way of it summarizing, but it just gets so insanely messy so quickly um, because you're, you know, if you had anything based on share price this year, it's going to be pretty, pretty um, affected by what's going on in the world. So yeah, that's, I think forecasting fundamental things that you can track is the way to go. So in the background, I can see you have a poster with the text man in the arena. Can mm-hmm. you talk a bit about this? Yeah, it's um, one of my favorite quotes is an Australian artist, actually, um, Zen, Zen Pencils, who uh, does these kind of motivational quotes. But it's um, yeah, one from Theodore Roosevelt. It's not the critic who counts. Um, the credit belongs to the man who's actually in the, marina, who's, uh, in the arena whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood. Um, I won't go the whole quote, but basically I think it's um, I think it's a, a good motivation for investing. You you constantly are dealing with criticism, whether it's the market or whatever else, um, and just focusing on people that are actually, you know, getting out there and doing it. Um, and frankly, we have the easy job as investors. We we get to invest. There's a lot of CEOs out there in the the real world doing the grind. So yeah, something 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 to deal with these these wild markets at least. So Matt, I mean, you mentioned a few books already, and I mean, we're always curious to to get new uh, ideas uh, on on books to read. So uh, first, how do you allocate your time between reading and and uh, and practicing the art of investing? Um, I yeah, I am just constantly haunted by all the books I haven't read. <laughs> I was uh, working from the library yesterday um, and just looking up and just constantly walking over to the bookshelves, <laughs> trying to think of things I want to read. So I don't think I'm a particularly fast reader. I think I absorb a lot when I do read and um, I'm constantly kind of putting a book down to stop and think about it. Um, I don't really have the balance, I guess. It's just, um, yeah, whenever you have spare time, I think it's it's interesting to to read. I try and like avoid having things in my life that distract <laughs> distract from it. So I have limited times that I'm allowed on Twitter and that kind of thing with my computer setup. Um yeah, so I don't I don't think it's an easy um yeah, there's no there's no golden bullet. I I don't I'm not a big believer in speed reading. I'm a big believer in comprehension. There's times where I tried to read, you know, as many books as I can and you know you can put up some numbers, but now I'm much more about absorbing and, and thinking through the few that um, are impactful. Uh, so yeah. Um in terms of other books that influenced me a lot, I think The Talent Code was a big one, which is a pretty simple book about kind of deep practice. Um, you know, great greatness isn't born, it's made. Here's how is the byline, which is pretty attractive. Um, I read that early. So that was one. I think for investors, Deep Survival, which I don't know if gets a lot of play by Lawrence Gonzalez, is a really great book. Um, it's basically stories of people who have survived, like horrific incidents um, and their, their tools. I think that's, again, a great one for psychology. 
um, the Tao Jones averages is a pretty not super well-known investing book um, about kind of whole brain thinking. So combining the right brain and the left brain. Um, <clears throat> we can't get, in, don't need to get into all that now, but I think that's a, <laughs> one that's very under, underrated. And um, next episode. And, and very useful. I mean, it's perfect that you mentioned this a bit underrated book. I, I, I've heard about the deep survival, but not the other. So we'll be good to look up. Yeah, we can do an episode in next year or so. Yeah, sounds good. I look forward <laughs> to tuning in. You also mentioned Rich Dad Poor Dad in the beginning as a book you would not recommend. Why is that? I guess like I might recommend it to a young person to get them interested in it. Um, it has a lot of bad advice in there um, as, as a downside, but it, it's kind of, <laughs> um, it's kind of it's quite emphatic and it just changes the way that I thought about the world at least. I was very, um, we grew up with not a lot of money. My parents grew up um, with very little money. And so I was always interested in saving, but I never had this idea of, of business as like a driver. Um, I wanted to impact the world. I kind of saw that that after reading that sort as the way to do it but it just kind of um it's got a lot of advice that sounds kind of good but it's just that it's not great financial advice i guess i'd put it that way there's some stuff in there that's good and it, it reframes you to think about wealth in a good way but the specifics of it i think there's some questions <clears throat> that i'd have um about the way that what it says but that like framing of how to think about things i think it's valuable I actually read that at, at an early stage as well. And I think for me, it acted as, as a spark. I mean, I fully agree on what you say, but it actually, at, at that time, it really helped me get going. A hundred percent. I read I read several, I read like eight of his books after that. Like it was, a, it was definitely <laughs> like the spark that started things off. So um, it's just that, yeah, as I got on, I was like, oh, actually this thing, like, is this really, you know, the, the, yeah. I think that that's what you need first is a spark, right? You need to see that you can do it. And that's a hundred percent what it's good for. And when it comes to super forecasting, I'm curious if there are any things or many things, I guess, but how do you use it in your private life? Private life. Um, <laughs> I haven't mentioned this publicly before. I bet on Donald Trump winning the election at a 10 to, <laughs> 10 to 1 odds when it was pretty early on. Um, I, I just find it all fascinating. I guess I think about, try to think about things probabilistically. Um, so yeah, I guess it spills over into private. I don't know if you count that kind of bidding as like a private life thing. Um, yeah, I try to think about it, out, outcomes. That's probably the main main thing is thinking probabilistically. I mean, all this stuff, it's like the, all the Buffett and Munger advice, right? It does make you kind of better, um, a better person, a lot of it. So if you can be, you know, cautious and thoughtful and all those things, I think it's good. Have you thought about joining the super forecasting team? I have thought about it a little bit, um, but yeah, it's not. Yeah, I've tried. I've dabbled with one. There was another one that was more open that you could easily kind of sign up for, um, and some public things. So yeah, I have. I, I did take part actually. I think they had an open super forecasting version that I took part in for a while. So yeah, but no, I guess my obsession, like you need to be obsessed with that to be really good at it. And my obsession is the market. So um, kind of, I didn't want to be thinking about the political outcome of whatever would a leader still be there in three years. I mostly wanted to think about investing. And uh, another question that I want to ask you is because in April this year, you posted a great question on Twitter that, that stayed in my mind. Uh, and you, you wrote, without thinking too deeply about it, what fiction book had had the greatest impact on how you think about business, investing and life? So I'm wondering if you got some good inspiration there. Yeah, I've got a good list there. I think previously I'd massively over-indexed on um, nonfiction. I've kind of been kind of an ambitious guy and thinking, you know, this is just wasting time hearing other people's stories. Um, and I'd started to come around a bit. Um, and I now think it's really useful. I particularly like mixing in like a fiction every couple of nonfictions or something like that. Because the what I love about it is the ability to expand your horizons. So 
well, for what I do, I like sci-fi. Like uh, some of the science fiction stuff can just blow your mind. I think Rainbow's End for how to think about augmented reality and what's coming is a really great sci-fi book. Um, but just, yeah, it, 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 it gives you an ob- ability to put your mind in someone else's mind in a way that's hard to do in other, in other you know, genres or styles. Um, and so, yeah, I got, got a lot of good ones out of that. But um, I think you can, you kind of live the experience in a fiction book in a way that nonfiction authors often struggle to do. And that's, that's incredibly valuable. Um, I'm more coming to the view that we're, as a society and as investors, over-indexed on kind of what you might call left brain, like analytical thinking. And we, we, we suffer from the um, absence of that whole picture connective, what's often called right brain, doesn't matter which hemisphere it happens in, but that style of thinking. And I think that fiction is a way to bring you into that. It gives you the whole picture. It's not just a, a bullet point list. And so, yeah, that's why I think it's, it can be really valuable. Matt Jost, thank you so much for coming on Investing by the Books podcast to share your thoughts and insights on the book Super Forecasting and how to apply it as an investor. Uh, do you want to add something more before we finish up here? Uh, no, I, do, I guess I just thanks very much for having me. If anyone is interested in this and how they apply forecasting to their you know professional what they do or just mastering investing, we're very open to working with other investors. Our kind of our driving force is to master the craft, and we'd love to you know swap notes or hear from other people about how they do that, how they can how they think about deep practice in investing. These are all pretty hard problems as we touched on in this pod. So yeah, feel free to reach out. Um, I guess you can hit me up on. Twitter at Matt Joss or on LinkedIn or however else people want to reach out. Um, keen to chat. Perfect. We'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by RedEye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore RedEye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.